The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, last several months on Wednesday nights, we've been in a series called Heart Cries, looking at various psalms. And these psalms so often are case studies Real men who are encountering God, processing their emotions, and some of the Psalms have directed us to look at our own souls. But every one of the Psalms that we've looked at, every one of the Psalms that are written ultimately may start with us, may talk about our emotions, but they direct us to the one who hears, the one who can handle, the one who heals our emotions. And tonight we look at a Psalm that just simply is saying, look to God, Look at the works of God. Praise this God who is at work in our lives. And so tonight, it really is a time for God to take all of us. And maybe we're looking around at this world. We're looking around our own lives and our heads are down and our heads are sideways. And God is saying, look up. Look at me. I am at work. I am always at work. And so tonight is a message that hopefully will, will challenge you and will stir your affections. I don't know if you've ever heard this saying it's a saying, it's something that goes something like this. Don't be so heavenly minded because you'll be no earthly good. Have you ever heard something along those lines? Well, let me just tell you that's stupid. <laughs> Proverbs says there's a way that seems right into a man, but its end is death. That's one of those things that it sounds good in a tweet or that sounds, well, yeah, that makes sense, but it's absolutely ridiculous. It has no weight. In fact, it's utter foolishness. The, the fact is, if we are ever to be any earthly good in our own lives, into our families, in this world around us, we must be heavenly minded. And when I say heavenly minded, I don't just simply mean, think about the day we'll get to heaven. Oh, there's that. I mean God. To have God constantly in our mind, in our hearts, in our affections, everywhere we go. To do that will actually lead to the most practical life, the most impactful life. That's what Psalm 111 is describing to us. If we're ever to have the life that we desire, a life that leads to blessings for us and for our generations, our kids and our kids' kids, a life that is unshakable, a life of generosity, of integrity, then we must be people who seek God. Why do I say that? Because Psalm 111 is perfectly matched with Psalm 112, which we'll get into a little bit tonight. They are both psalms that aren't just chronologically placed side by side and coincidentally, oh, they talk about, no, Holy Spirit inspired these two psalms to go together. That you really can't get the Psalm 112 life. And when we look at Psalm 112, it describes an incredibly great and blessed life. It describes the life of the man or woman who is generous, who has wealth, whose generations are blessed, who has no fear, who is unshakable. All of that is predicated upon the person who fears the Lord. So Psalm 112 describes a great life. But listen, you can never have a great life without the great God of Psalm 111. Psalm 111 shows us, reveals to us, moves us. There's this great God. Hallelujah. Praise this great God. And that will lead to the great life that God wants that we want. And so tonight we're going to focus in on this great God that Psalm 111 speaks to us about. We're going to make some connections to Psalm 112, and I'll encourage you this week to dive deeper into both, and particularly Psalm 112, as we won't have time to get into it tonight. But if we want the 112 life, we must know and believe and live according to the God that is revealed to us in Psalm 111. And simply put, we see in Psalm 111 a God who is at work. He has always been at work. He is 
and he always will be at work and he's at work in our lives. And, and what he wants to do is he wants to work in our lives. And finally, we'll talk about how do we connect to that? How do we connect to this God who invites us to partner with him and invites us in to have a, a real powerful and personal relationship with him? Well, this psalm begins like the Psalm 112 begins. Both of them, I said, are companion psalms. Both are what are called an acrostic, meaning in the Hebrew uh, language, it's poetry. Each one of the lines begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Both Psalm 111 and 112 are patterned this way. Both begin with this word, in English, three words, but in Hebrew, it's one word. And that word in Hebrew is hallelujah. I know for some of you, and one of you, I'm thinking it's your favorite word to say. She's laughing right now. Hallelujah. English, praise the Lord. And Psalm 111 says, hallelujah, praise to this God who works. Several times, even as I read it, you heard that word works or deeds or wondrous works. In English, some of the translations, I think New King James says works several times. NIV uh, has a little more nuance. In the Hebrew, there are three different words. One is works, one is deeds, and one is simply wonders. It's God's actions. And we're called to marvel. We're called to praise. We're called to stop and to look up and to see our God is a God who is absolutely involved in history, who's absolutely involved in our lives. This word works is oftentimes described and used in creation. We read in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible when it speaks of works, it speaks of God's creation in the cosmos and biology and all around us. When we look around, we're called to delight, to study all that God has done. Several weeks back in Psalm 119, we talked about that, hearing God's voice in creation, to see his works, to study them. Some of your translations say to ponder. I love that, to ponder the works of God. And every scientist, whether they realize it or not, are actually doing that. They are pondering, they're studying the works of God. They're studying the works of the greatest artist, whether it's the cosmos and the stars and the galaxies, the Milky Way, the expansion of the universe, whether it's those under a microscope who are studying cells and mitochondria and all the inner workings of how our bodies miraculously work, whether it's those who study philosophy or economics, whether they study physics and the laws that govern our universe, all these different things, whether they realize it or not, they're actually studying the works of God. Now, it's those scientists who know they're studying the works of God who actually can delight and, and marvel and end up in worship. And it's those who set out with that desire to not just simply understand physics and engineering and mechanics and philosophy and economics, but those who say, through all these things, I'm going to discover more of who God is and how his world works. Oh, they've been able to discover some of the most incredible things. Men like Newton who were absolutely sold out believers. And the reason he studied all that he did wasn't just to know science, so we delighted in it, but for him, it was worship. In our day and age, a man like Francis Collins, who, who, who under, uh, discovered the human genome, or not discovered, but mapped it out, who's a strong and committed believer. A man like James Tour, who is a, a, a believer, the, the leading biochemist in our day and age, has one of the most powerful radical testimonies. And every day he goes in the lab and says, God, show me your wonders. Reveal things to me. Just this last week, I finished up reading a biography about George Washington Carver. You guys remember him about the peanut? Do you remember him? Fascinating, amazing. The son of a slave and all that he went through and yet a man who was fully committed to the Lord and God showed him amazing and wondrous things. Who protected his life, who preserved his life, who established his life. He says this, I love to think of nature 
as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. He said this, he would begin each day with a prayer that God would reveal secrets to him about plants and vegetables. It is reported one time he prayed, one prayer, he said, Mr. Creator, show me the secrets of your universe. And he heard God say back, little man, you're not big enough to know the secrets of my universe, but I'll show you the secrets of the peanut. <laughs> and if you know anything about his story, he, he, he presented uh, before Congress and they really weren't paying attention. They were simply at the end of the day, ready to check out. They gave him 10 minutes and it was a, during a time of World War I and, and rations and supplies were limited. They're trying to figure a few things out. And somebody said, you need to hear this guy. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he brought a box and he started giving all these uses of peanuts. And 10 minutes turned into several hours. And all of a sudden the congressman said, you got to come in here. You gotta, and they booked him again because he just started describing what they thought was simply a peanut. Well, you can use soap out of it. You can make this out of it. You can, all of these things. And they were absolutely blown away. And they said, how did you do this? And I said, well, God showed me. The, the, the works of God, those who delight in them. I read this in several commentaries. I haven't been there, but hopefully one day maybe I will. In Cambridge over the Cavendish lab, verse two is inscribed over the hallway. So when you enter this lab, at one point, there were those who went in there studying, believing that it was God who was revealing himself. But again, those words, greater the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. Again, all science is studying the work of God, whether you know it or not. But I exhort you, I encourage you, for those of you who are in certain fields like that, I, you already know, you, you, you probably feel sorry for some of your coworkers because they're just doing the job, but for you, it's worship, man. You're like learning more about God and his work. You go into jobs, your job and you're like, God, show me, reveal to me, teach me new and wondrous and amazing things. The word wonders here is referring specifically, uh, alluding to the time of the Exodus. And there's allusions even here in verse one, uh, excuse me, chapter 111, that what he's talking about was God's faithfulness, his work in delivering his people. The wonders of his work when he fed them with manna, when he remembered his covenant that was established there at Mount Sinai. When God gave this people, a people without any kind of military skill, a people who only knew how to chisel stone and make bricks, that God delivered them and brought them into a land that he had promised to their forefather, Abraham, 400 years previously. To a group of people who were slaves, God redeemed. Through the works of God, he, through the plagues of Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the manna that was provided, God brought those people, his people, into their inheritance. They had no military skills. They had really no skills of government. And yet God fathered them. God taught them. God gave them laws. God brought them into their inheritance. And as we read through this quickly, we see that there's a, a mix of past and present tenses. In the Hebrew, originally, it was all past tense. It was referring back to this time. But many of the modern translations actually put this in a present tense. And what they're describing, what they're trying to accomplish is that the same God who did it then is the same God who continues to do this work now. The same God who provided manna provides daily bread for all those who ask, both physical and spiritual. The covenant that was there established at Mount Sinai is a covenant that we will celebrate and remember tonight in communion. The new covenant that God establishes and remembers forever to all those who put their faith in Jesus. There was a land that was given to him and for us there is a land that is coming, a new heaven and a new earth, a Jerusalem that we look for and we long for. They were delivered from the physical bondage there in Egypt. You and I as believers have been delivered from sin, Satan, sickness and death. That's what God has delivered us from and he delivers us to something so much better. So the praise here is for God. Listen, 
He's a God who is powerful. Theologically, we would say he's a God who is transcendent. This is the right and proper perspective of who our God is, but he's not a God who is far off. When we say transcendent, sometimes we think, and some people believe, oh, he's, he's God, but he's somewhere out there. There was a popular thing that came out of the Enlightenment era called deism or deists who believed in God generally. They believed God created the earth and like a cosmic, you know, clockmaker, he wound it up and kind of just let it go. Perhaps some of you know the story of Thomas Jefferson and his Bible that you can go see that he took all the miracles out. He was a deist. He believed in God generally, but not personally. Now, the God that we read and encounter in Scripture is a God who is transcendent. He is powerful, but he is imminent. He is personal. He is powerful. He is involved. That's what Psalm 111 describes to us. It describes to you. He is involved in history. He is involved in your life, in my life. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. And we fall into these errors at times. In ancient times, they had all kinds of versions of gods, whether it was Zeus or Ra or Baal. The gods were reluctant. They were capricious. They had to be cajoled and coerced to get involved in their lives. No, the one true God is like, no, I'm not capricious. No, I'm not volatile. I want to be more involved in your life than you want me to be involved in your life. I want to pour my love and grace far more than you want my love and grace. And we fall into errors even in modern times of having a view of God that he's far off but not close or he's so close that he's not transcendent. We have a form of godliness, but we deny his power. That he's a, a buddy, he's there, he exists to do whatever we want. And if we live a good life, he kind of owes us. Listen, the God of Psalm 111, the God of the Bible is not simply there for us. No, we exist for him. We come to worship him. He has created all things and for him and for his good pleasure. All things, that means you and me, we were created for him and for his good pleasure. He's not just simply there like genie from uh, Aladdin there to do our wishes and and I'm not just talking about the world. A lot of believers have an idea of God like that. The God of the Bible is powerful and he's involved. I remember years ago, reading a very tiny little book called Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. Anybody read that book? Anybody out there? A couple of you. Great little book. And the premise of that book is we have such a wrong vision, version, understanding of who God is. And I'll just read you some of the chapter titles. I won't read all of them, but some of the chapter titles as he describes some of our versions of God. Policeman, uh, Grand Old Man, Pale Galilean, Managing Director, Meek and Mild, and on and on it goes. All these little descriptions of a lesser, smaller version of God. And listen, the main audience for that book was not the world out there. The, the main audience, the target audience for his book was written to believers who have a much too small version of who God is. You see, it's easy sometimes, and I'm speaking to a room of believers who are here, it's easy sometimes to point at the world out there and say, you don't believe in God? Don't you know who this God is? And yet, if we would look at ourselves, do we really believe in this God that we claim to believe in? Do we really worship this God who is transcendent and powerful, who demands our, our worship, our, our everything? Do we really believe that he's so powerful and yet so loving and so close, so close that the Bible says he whispers in a still small voice. The God who can shake heaven and earth is the God who comes close and whispers, whispers to us like he did with Elijah. 
You whisper in intimacy. You whisper to friends. You whisper when you're close. This is the God that we serve. He's not one or the other. He is both. And too many Christians sadly have adopted the same mindset of the world. And it's time that we kind of get our heads back up and understand and be reminded once again of how great and powerful and how good and how close our God is. Now, why is this so important? Why does this matter? How great and powerful our God is? Because what Psalm 111 is also telling us, this great and powerful God wants to work in our lives, wants to be involved in your life. He wants more to be in your life than you want him to be in your life. You think, no, I really want him in my my life. That's true. But trust me, he wants so much more to be in your life than perhaps you even want or you're aware of. He wants to be connected to your life. Why does all this matter? Because what we believe about God will radically determine how we live. Your concept of who God is It cannot not change how you live. I know it's a double negative, but you know what I'm trying to say. To really understand this God and to really believe who he is has to radically change how you live, how you think, how you go about life. Because if your life is not radically changed or different, I don't think you really know him. You might know about him, but you really haven't known him. Because to really know him means you're going to live a different life. You're going to end up in Psalm 112. Whether you, whether you want to just do Psalm 112, if you just live in Psalm 111, you will get to that Psalm 112 life. The key here, the key to all of this is in verse 10. It's a verse that so many of us know very well. It's a verse that is spoken of several times in Scripture. It comes up in Proverbs many times. It comes up in Psalms. It comes up here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, the psalmist is describing this God of wonders, this God who works, the God who gives deeds, who establishes his precepts, his laws, who gives his people a covenant and land, all these things. And what's the application? What's the connection? You want wisdom? It begins with fearing this God, to understand who this God is. The fear of the Lord. I pose you this question, which Lord? The fear of this Lord, the fear of the Lord who's revealed to us in Psalm 111. Not a lesser Lord, not a lesser God, not a God of our imagination, not of our uh, control, of our uh, conjuring up, but no, the God of Psalm 111 who is sovereign, who is powerful, a God who has created heaven and earth, a God who is good, who is involved, who is transcendent and imminent. Which Lord are we to fear? It's this Lord. And when we say fear, it doesn't mean we're, we're afraid of him like he's a volatile, gonna fly off the, the handle dad that maybe some of us had growing up or a fear like, I don't know if I, no, the fear of the Lord means it's an awe and respect. The fear of the Lord means you come and understand who he is and it completely changes everything about your life, how you speak, how you think, what you do, where you go. It means the fear of the Lord to connect this great God that he, you must know him personally and you have to connect who he is and all that he does and all that he wants into every part of your life. That means you'll know what to do, where to go, how to live. And it's eminently practical. The fear of the Lord is not esoterical. It's not just simply theological to really believe it, to practice it. Because that's what it says here. Those who practice it. We practice the fear of the Lord. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's something we put into practice. It means we connect this God into everything that we do into your business, into your, into your career, into your marriage, into your uh, child raising, into your relationships, everything. 
And when you do this, there is wisdom, there is flourishing, there is growth, there is fruit. When we connect this to our body, soul, and spirit, that's what Psalm 111 is saying. That's what God desires. Listen, what you believe about God has total influence on everything you do and how you will live. And to the degree that you understand and respond to the Lord, the Lord here revealed to us in Scripture is a degree to how your life will, will flourish and function and how it will work and how you will live. Let me just highlight a couple of things. I said we wouldn't have time to really get into Psalm 112, but a couple of things I think are going to be helpful for us tonight because it says there at the end of this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 112 begins this, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Like I said, the great God leads to a great life. And what's the key is knowing, fearing, understanding who this God is. Blessed, oh, how happy is a man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Verse two, it says, his offspring will be mighty in the land. You parents, as you learn to fear the Lord, there's a promise of blessing that will be passed on in your generations. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. Verse four, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Oh, right now we are living in dark times. Times of uncertainty. We look around at the chaos that has become our nation. We're like, what is going on? The pandemic, the economic crisis, these cries for justice and it's a mixed thing. We, we feel the pain on one hand and yet for most of us who are paying attention, we also realize there's a lot of shady bad things that are happening in the midst of all this. And if you're not, you need to be paying attention and you need to be praying because there's a lot of darkness mixed in with this. There's some precious things going on, but there's also some satanic and, and, and very worldly things mixed in with all that's going on. And what we've seen around us is the restraining hand of God kind of lifted back to a, to a world and to a nation that has said, no, thanks, God. God's saying, okay. And he's, I believe he stepped back a little bit because the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as a restrainer. And I think what we've been seeing is a little bit of that restraining blessing that God provides a little bit peeled back. And what we're seeing is like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And for those who will fear God, who will know God, who will call in the name of God, God says, I will give you light in the midst of darkness. For those of us, even believers were wondering, what do I do? I can't tell me believers and I felt the same way. God, what, what's going on? What's all this noise? Where are you at? And God says, if you'll look to me, I will give you light. I, I will show you the path because light gives us guidance. Light gives us peace. God says in the midst of darkness, those who, who call on me, who fear my name will have light. My word will be a light into your path. I will light the way. He says, verse five, it is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice in a world that's crying and looking for justice. They're crying for something, but they don't know really ultimately where to go and how to have it. Where is it going to be found? It's found in the Lord. It's found with the people of God who are to be those who do justly, who walk humbly as we're called to do, who love justice, who, oh man, somebody help me with that verse, Micah. Those, what is it that God requires you, old man, but to somebody help me out here, having a brain freeze. Somebody, anybody? Love mercy. That was the one I couldn't thank you, Ray. Love mercy. I didn't want to miss that part. Yes. Praise God for Ray. Goes on to say this. So those will be those who integrity will love justice for the righteousness will never be moved or some of the translations never be shaken. 
Verse seven, he is not afraid or will not fear bad news. His heart is firm, trust in the Lord. His heart is steady, unshaken, unmovable. He will not be afraid. And on and on it goes. Do you see what I'm talking about in Psalm 112? How do we have this life? It begins when we fear the Lord. In a world that is shaking right now. And, and not just locally, not just, you know, regionally, not even nationally, but in a, a shaking that is taking place globally. There is a shaking because God said in the end times, he said in Haggai, he, 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 it's quoted again in the New Testament, there will be a shaking. Hebrews says, I will shake heaven and earth so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And you know what cannot be shaken is the Lord and, and his people. That's what the promise here is. What God wants for it, you, for me, for his, for his men and women who say, yes, I will fear you, Lord. He says, if you fear me and trust me, when everybody else is shaking, when everyone else is anxious and fearful and doesn't know what to do, if you will call on me and look to me and trust in me, you will not be shaken. You will not be afraid. You will possess a peace that nobody else has. And how do you have this peace? Because you fear the Lord, amen. The, the promise here, listen, you fear the Lord, you will fear nothing else. You, you won't fear what's going to happen with the Dow Jones as it goes up and down. You won't fear whatever craziness comes out of Washington, whoever gets elected in November. And I don't even know the answer to that because both camps, I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, come quickly. But I don't have to fear. Because let me tell you, if I look at a few of those guys, I am afraid. <laughs> if my eyes were there, I am petrified. What? These, what? No, Lord, Lift our chins, lift our eyes. I think of Habakkuk, you know, who didn't understand what God was doing this time. Lord, I don't understand, I don't understand. And he, he presents his case. And then in the beginning of chapter two, Habakkuk says, I will climb to the watchtower. I will wait and see what God you are going to do. We need men and women right now who get in the watchtower and say, God, what are you doing? Lord, there's so much noise. There's so much confusion right now. God, I am like Habakkuk. I don't understand what you're doing, but I fear you. I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna wait and see. God, what do you say? What are you doing? What, what, and God's going to say, and start revealing what's behind some of all this stuff and what he wants his people to do. And when we hear his voice and we know what's going on, Jeremiah 15, 17 says this, is, is, as those who know him and trust him, we need to come to a place where we are able to, the Bible says, extract the precious from the vile. And there's a lot of stuff out there. It's like this, but there's something precious as well. God's doing something in the midst of all this. And we need to be men and women who hear what God is doing. And a lot of really chaotic things, but Lord, where are you working? What's precious? What's from you? Okay, Lord, that's the stream I want to get in. Because I see that and it's being hijacked. And I see that and no, that's not from you. And no, that's not. But Lord, this is what you're speaking. This is what you're doing. Okay, God. And, and the world wants to say, say something now and say the same thing. That's what the world's telling us. They're, 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 we feel unbelievable pressure to say something and say what everybody else is saying. Men and women of God, like we have to get, God, what are you saying? And don't just say something to say something because no matter what you say, if you're just saying something because that's what the world's saying, you will say the wrong thing. You will like the wrong thing and you'll be canceled. <laughs> God, what are you saying? What do you want? God, help me to get above the noise because there is a lot of noise right now and hear what you're saying and see what you want me to see. Does, does that make sense, church? God promises, Psalm 112, to those who fear him, they'll fear nothing else. 
He promises a thriving family, strong relationships, <laughs> financial security, generosity, faithfulness, fearlessness in a world crying out, demanding justice, looking and longing for justice. Listen, we are those who actually have the answer. We are those who need to be the most vocal in a world that doesn't really want to hear what we have to say. We have to say it anyway. And we have to be clear about our message and to be convicted and absolutely certain about the answer. We need to be men and women of poise who, who do not fear man because, oh man, right now, the spirit of fear is just released and the, and the fear of man is just like so heavy. Because we know, like, you say the wrong thing and you like the wrong thing, man, you could lose your job. It's crazy right now. And so we need to be men and women. We, we can't navigate life if we're constantly pivoting, worried about the fear of man. We go, Lord, I'm gonna fear you. I'm gonna trust you. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, Lord, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean into you during this crazy time and see you work and do something I could never have asked or imagined. Do we want the life of Psalm 112? Then it, it requires us to, to know the God and believe the God and submit to the God of Psalm 111. More than any other time, this is a time for the church to delight in God, but to really once again to learn the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord, to be humbled before God, to be in awe of his presence. You believe in God, great, but do you believe God? You, oh, I believe in God, great, but do you really believe him? Do you listen to him? Do you follow him? Is there an awe and wonder, a legitimate fear and reverence for God and what he wants to do in your life? Because if there is that, then there'll be wisdom. If there's not, only foolishness. That's the two choices. To fear the Lord leads to wisdom. To reject that, to go, oh, he's there, is to end up becoming the fool. To playing the part of the fool, to come to the end of your life and go, what was it all for? Vanity, vanity, nothing, pff, a mist, gone. To have all that we've done pass through the fire and it was like, oh, I thought this was all great. And nope, wood, hay, and stubble, not a lot left. Because I was so worried about this person, that person, instead I was worried about what you said and what you wanted, God. To a world right now, listen, if you really hear the cries of the world and there's some legitimate pain and they're really true legitimate cries, there, there is a cry for justice because in our hearts, for those who are created in the image of God, we long for, we desire, we demand justice. What we want, listen, even what they want out there, what they realize, what they're craving and longing for in the world is the kingdom. That's what they want. But listen, they want the kingdom without the king. Do you understand that? They want a kingdom of their own choosing. They want justice. They want this. They want, but they kind of want to make it up. So they're, they're trying to do it in their own way and it's going to end in foolishness. It's going to end in frustration. It's going to end in more violence and more chaos. It's not going to end well. And there's a lot of believers in their own life. They kind of want the kingdom in their own life without the king too or the king to do what they want. No, if we really want the kingdom, it has to come as we submit and honor and worship the king. And so what the world looks for, and listen, so we, as we, we can't... We, what we need to learn to do is discern the cry. There is a legitimate cry of pain and justice and go, that is good, but that's wrong. This is true. Okay, that's the, that's the precious in the midst of this vial. Okay, let's speak into that. Let's pray into that. Let's see that cry. What you're wanting for is actually what God wants, but it's only gonna happen when the king is ruling and reigning. So we, meet, we must be people who, who bring about the kingdom, who want the kingdom, but listen, it's through uh, worshiping and establishing the king and saying it's the king who will bring the kingdom. And his people who submit themselves to the king, that's where the kingdom will grow and 
flourish. And anything else, to, to want the kingdom without the king is foolishness. To think you can establish a kingdom without the king, you will end up being a fool. But to say, Lord, I want you, I want your kingdom, that's the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. So how do we connect to this power? And I'll close and we'll get ready to receive communion together tonight. How do we connect to this power? Because I don't want us to get fired up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do we connect? How do, how do I fear the Lord practically? What does that mean in my life? I, I want to respond. There's three things I see in this text. Many more. We could probably pull up three practical things. Number one is we study. We study this God. That's what it says in verse two. Great are the works of the Lord studied or pondered by all who delights in them. This is another message. Yes, study the Bible. But we study God. That's what we're, we're invited to, is to study the scriptures, but we study creation. Everything we do, what we're looking for is we're studying God. We're saying, God, who are you? What are you up to? Do you understand what I mean? Like, so it's not just information here. It's like, no, I'm coming to know you, God. In this world, all of your works, whether it's creation, all of your works in people's lives, Lord, I want to study you. I want to ponder. Wow, God, what are you doing? What does it reveal about you? What are you up to right now? So we study the works of God. It's an approach to life. Listen, what, what I'm talking about when I say study God is it's an approach to life. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you're, you're trying to connect to God. So it's not like God's on my, in my life Wednesdays and Sundays and maybe growth group. And then the rest of my life is here. I'm going to work at Qualcomm. God's out there. And now I go back to God. No, it's like wherever you go, you're studying God. Does that make sense? I love what we're doing at MCS because at MCS, our, 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 our school, it's not like, okay, here's the Bible class and now here's the math class. No, what we're teaching and training is a whole next generation of seeing God in everything. Every class is about biblical integration. So if you're studying Spanish or, or you're studying uh, math, if you're studying physics or chemistry or biology, every class has biblical integration so that we have a, a group of believers that aren't like, well, God's here. This is the sacred part and now the secular part. No, the, the Bible knows no such thing. And may we be men and women who uh, see God as much as we can in, in everything. We were having a discussion earlier about, you know, over-spiritualizing versus under-spiritualizing. And I, I know what that means for some people to hyper-spiritualize and get way off base. But I would say for the most part, most of us under-spiritualize everything. We're not looking for God nearly enough. If really this is his world that he created, that he is actively involved with, if we have eyes of faith, we will start seeing him in so many more places. We'll start hearing him so much more clearly if we really believe that so that we would study God, approach to God at everything. We'll start having more Newtons and George Carvers and, and sanctified Steve Jobs, you know, saved Steve Jobs of the world. If we start approaching life this way, we'll have more Billy Grahams and Ravi Zacharias and all these men and women who will say, yes, I see you, God. But more practical right now, and I kind of already alluded to this, is God, what are you doing right now? I, I kind of I said that just a few moments ago, but we need to ask ourselves, study God at all times. God, what are you doing right now in this time in history? What are you doing right now in our nation? What are you doing right now? I want to see you at work because I know for a lot of us, we're kind of, what is going on? And if we start asking and we start looking, God will reveal. God speaks to his friends. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. He wants to speak to you. He wants to reveal to you. He's not, I don't know, I'm gonna hold out until you really prove to me how much you want. He's like, no, I want to if you'll listen. So first thing was there, study God. Second thing, obey God. 
throughout this, it simply says this, and I'll move quickly. It's talking over and over about the precepts of God, the commands of God, about those who practice the precepts of God. Simply this, it's obedience. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's really complicated. I love it when it's just simple and like, I know that, but I don't like that. <laughs> it's obedience. You see, when we come into contact with this God, this is not a God we simply invite into our life to be our managing director, our business partner, the buddy upstairs. This is a God we say, Lord, whatever you want, I will do it. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Your word is my will. Lord, command me. That, that, that's what it means to obey. When it says the precepts or the commandments of the Lord are true or trustworthy, what that means is as we follow, as we obey, as we say yes to the Lord, we realize, oh, God made this universe. He knows how it works. And so if I don't do the things he tells me not to do and I do the things he tells me to do, guess what? It will go well. <laughs> it will actually lead to a life of flourishing. He really knows better than you do what will make you happy. I know it's a tough thing to believe because we always think, I think I know what will make me happier. No, God's like, I actually know what will make you happy and flourish. And I want more for you than you actually think you want for yourself. But you need to obey. You need to trust. And God says, you can't just invite me to be your personal assistant. I'm not the man upstairs. No, I am your Lord and Savior. You submit, you trust to me. And last thing is this, we worship God. So we study God, we obey God, and we worship God. That's what this whole psalm's about. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And it says this, it says, I will give thanks to the Lord. You see the psalmist, he's making a choice. I will do this. I will do this. Because he's pondering, he's thinking that's the mental aspect and that's important. We need to think but the worship part is where we get our heart and our emotion engaged. And it's not one or the other, it's both. And so this whole Psalm really is about praising and worshiping this great God who is active and at work. So how do we lead to, you get into Psalm 112, it, it, in, in truly fearing the Lord, it really is worshiping. And how does he say he's going to worship? He says, I will worship in the congregation. I will worship in the assembly. And he says, I will worship with my whole heart. So he's aware of the tendency to worship half-heartedly. And that's why he says, I will worship with my whole heart. Do you understand that? Because if we're honest, some of us have that tendency. We know like, yeah, I worship with half my heart. I'm kind of halfway in and I don't really feel like worship. Listen, there's going to be times when you don't feel like it. We go, I will worship. And I will pray in private, but I will gather together in public. And with my brothers and sisters, I will cry out. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will praise this great God. And something powerful happens. The fear of the Lord happens, worship happens, blessing happens, wisdom is released. And so what this is calling us to is a great prayer life, a great praise life, both in private and in public. God is at work. Do you know what he is up to? If you're to live and experience the life that 112 offers to us, we must know this great God. J.I. Packer wrote a great book called knowing God, and I highly, highly recommend it. It's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God, one of the great classics. And he begins with a long quote from a sermon given by a 20-year-old in England, Charles Spurgeon, whose education, by the way, finished when he was age 15. And the sermon began as he began this way in front of the new congregation. It has been said by someone, his sermon begins, the proper study of mankind is man. 
He says, I will not oppose the idea, but I believe equally true the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around in this narrow globe. Science, whatever it is, ennobles and enlarges mind. I dare say it does, but nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity of God. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a cure for every soul. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares and go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea? Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. It is to that subject, he says, I invite you this morning, what I say to you tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.